This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Embracing the Premise. Modes of the War Film. Keisha Howard. And the Old Man of the Mountain. When we're not talking about stuff, odds are good that we're making games. Game Playwright Press and Atlas Games think making games is awesome, too. That's why they're kickstarting The White Box, a game design workshop in a box. The White Box is a book, huh, of essays by game design professor Jeremy Holcomb. Plus, here's where the box part comes in, a boatload of wooden bits, plastic discs, and punchboard tokens. It's the perfect catalyst to get the game design that's stuck in your head out of there and onto the tabletop. It'll fulfill in October, so it's a great holiday gift for aspiring game designers, creative young people, and that inveterate house ruler in your board game group. The White Box Kickstarter is going on now. Search Kickstarter for The White Box. Or visit atlas-games.com slash the white box. Plus the traditional link in the show notes. Making games is rad. Back the white box now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here, in the Gaming Hut, we have apparently a player who believes that they are not in the Gaming Hut. They're in some sort of living room or car or gymnasium (laughs) listening to a podcast. What? How dare you reject our premise? Robin, in the play environment, what do we do? When a player rejects the premise? Uh, Well, specifically, I'd like to look at what you as a player can do if you sense, or more likely, people begin to subtly hint to you that you are rejecting the premise of the scenario. And of course, let's let's get the qualifiers and the specifics out of the way and uh, indicate that this assumes that you're playing in a scenario that does have a premise. Uh, Obviously, a, a sandbox game where you just have utter freedom to tool around and are expected to go off in weird directions. Uh, you cannot reject that premise because the, I guess the only way you can reject the premise of a sandbox game is to do nothing or to do nothing interesting. Well, you can reject the premise of the setting, right? If you're, or, or of the spirit of the game. Like if you're saying we're playing swashbucklers and your solution to that is to play a, a, a character who is uh, not, uh, an adventurer who doesn't swing on chandeliers, doesn't get into brawls, doesn't uh, care about ladies or, or gold or anything. Yeah, you're rejecting right. the premise you can say, in that I'm way. the accountant. I'm the accountant. I'm the I'm the sessile accountant in in our swashbucklers game. Um, and so you can reject premises in that way. Like if, if the premise is, you know, the the the, the stories are all going to be fast driven adventures, and you're not going to worry about money, and you can reject that premise by uh, uh, penny pinching. Or conversely, if it's like the premise is that we're in a state of scarcity because it's post Holocaust or zombies or whatever, and you're like, no, no, I reject the premise. I I don't want to keep track of ammo. I I hate doing it. Um, you so you can reject sort of 
edge edge case premises or genre premises. Right. But for the purposes of this segment, we're talking about rejecting the premise of the adventure or the campaign. Am I right, Robin? Yeah. So the, this assumes something like, as you would get in a gumshoe game where there's a mystery to be solved and you have discovered where the outlines of the mystery are. <laughs> and your fully sensible response is, well, let's not go there. Right. <laughs> um, or, you know, in a... a dungeon uh, sort of situation where your uh, GM has clearly created the underwater dungeon that you have to go through and you just go, oh, I don't really care for water uh, or whatever it is. Anything, I'll just stay in the boat. Yeah. Anything where the Watch assumption the is treasure. that the, the GM has done a certain amount of preparation and you're expected in order to have the maximum fun that night to engage with that preparation because doing so will be uh, more satisfying for uh, everybody, including the GM who did all that prep then forcing the, the GM to sort of uh, uh, faff about and do a, a less cool job of improvising. So what happens when you realize, and how do you realize that you're rejecting the premise? So uh, it should be pretty simple and obvious thing to say, oh, well, hmm, I'm deciding to go off and not do the thing that clearly it's signposted that I'm supposed to do. So the I guess the first question is, why do people do that? Because they do. In some cases, it is because they have a secondary value over the story. They, they may be saying, well, my character wouldn't do that. That's right. sort of the standard answer that people give. Or they may feel like the premise has not been acceptably presented to them. If the GM is like, you're going to go to underwater because I told you you're going underwater. And you see, I have a book set labeled underwater adventure, go underwater. They're like, I don't buy it. I don't think that that's legit. I want to have a glowing orb or a mermaid or something telling me to go underwater so that I feel like I have the minimal engagement that you're putting the engagement into giving me a hook so that I can go underwater. Um, and th that's maybe a version of playing the character. It may be a version of saying, this is uncompelling to me. And I, and I don't know why I have to go underwater just because you bought a new book. Right. So the, the question then is, and if you're in the first category, if you're in the totally in locked into the logic of your character and what your character would and wouldn't do, um, often that's an, all you're really thinking of is not what impact will this have on the evening's fun, but just, well, okay, here's this logic point about my character. They're not going to do that. Um, and I think it goes back to a broader tradition of the players expecting the GM to do a lot of the work in order to cajole and petition them in order to persuade them to have the fun tonight. And so I think the first step is to realize that as a player, it is your uh, part of your job to meet the GM and the other players halfway in order that you can all get to the fun. Fun is everybody's job. Yes. Um, and so... Uh, I think that realization, first of all, takes you uh, a long way. And so that you're not just thinking about what your character would do. Um, and uh, you are also thinking about what all of the players will enjoy uh, doing. So the, the next question is, if you feel that the uh, you don't understand why your character would do that, you can then uh, suggest to the uh, the GM that they need to do a little bit more to kind of meet you halfway. Uh, and so how do you go about doing that? How do you, uh, without being a, a jerk about it, uh, get the GM to sort of fill in the blanks that will help you to make that leap to engage with the underwater dungeon or uh, the, the weird mystery at the quarry? I think that in some games, it's easier to signal that than others. Like if you're talking about a gumshoe investigation and the GM is like, oh, it's the haunted house. You're going to the damn haunted house. Go to the haunted house. And you are 
the player is like, I don't feel like I've been convinced to go to the haunted house yet. What you can do is you can say, I'm going to go research the haunted house in the town library, or I'm going to go talk to the only survivor of the last trip to the haunted house or do something else where you're still engaging the mystery, but you're sending the GM the signal that says you have not yet got my player in a position where my character in a position where they feel like they need to go into the haunted house yet, or they need more information. They need a sweetener. They need some other thing that gets them into the haunted house. And you could, and you send that signal by saying, I understand the haunted house is key. I just want to know or feel more about the haunted house before we go in. And the GM can push back and say, Oh, there's, uh, the library is closed and there's, uh, nobody around because the last guy went crazy and he's in a, in mental asylum way out of state. And also, you know, while you're asking around, you have people say, you know, things like, well, it's not going to matter. The whole place is going to be knocked down by the county tomorrow morning. Uh, and you're like, oh, okay, now we have to go in or whatever. You have to provide, a little give and take in that way with the going underwater for the underwater dungeon. I think it's harder to say that without sort of sounding like the guy who's uh, I'm just playing my character guy. And so you have to convey a willingness to go underwater, but, and it may just be in a, in the sense of having your character fold his, his meaty thews and saying, well, I understand that if we rescue the princess, we have to go down into the land of the mermaids, but what's in it for what's in it for Bartok. And everyone's like, oh, Bartok, if you go down there, you'll get that seaweed cape you've always wanted or something. Yes, we will uh, teach you to write semi-atonal music. We will. Um, well, that's been Bartok's dream since Bartok <laughs> picked up Battle Axe. Yes, Let's exactly. go. Secret to atonalism lies in ocean depths. Why Bartok not think? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, ultimately, this is all about a rule from in- improv, uh, which is don't negate. Right. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, those of the geek mind negate a whole lot. <laughs> well, in fairness, and, negation is fun. Pardon me? <laughs> negation, the act of negating is fun. It does not lead to future fun, exactly. but in the moment, it provides a little dopamine hit. Yes, and it, uh, we are used to caviling and, and you know, just... You know, just look at the way that uh, those of the geek mind, uh, for example, attempt to tag jokes in social media. Which, instead of building on the premise that they've been given, they contradict the premise. It's like, that's not how you keep a joke going. And in this case, that's not how you keep a game going. So uh, make sure that if you are doing something, uh, as you uh, suggest, other than immediately engage with the thing, that you're doing something. You're not just, well... Let's pull out of the area and go back to headquarters, right? right. That doesn't, that let's, is go, let's go into the hills and fight those um, uh, hill, de- hill giants we heard about. I'll bet they have atonalism. Right. So ask yourself if you are uh, negating, and if you are, then uh, find a way to uh, keep the story going in an interesting way. Part of this may come from, I think, a almost always unfounded distrust, uh, or perhaps founded, depending on your GM. Yes, let's hope that, it's unfounded. Yeah, <laughs> that the GM is going to pose you for doing the things that are necessary for the story to happen. Yeah, let's let's take this off the player a little bit and talk to the GM. Let's let's put our arms around the GM and take them off for a huddle. GMs, don't hose the players for obeying your premise. That's a great way to never get them to obey the premise. Right. But often it's the case that the GM isn't doesn't dream of of, of doing that because they know it would But the be- GM says, "Oh, I'm just playing the setting. The haunted house is going to take all their stuff away because that's what haunted houses do." Yes. Or underwater, they're not going to be able to use spells because water would flow into their mouth when they try and cast spells. That's just how underwater works. Yes. Or it stands to reason that Mr. Johnson would screw them at the end of the His name is Mr. Johnson. It says so on his card. Every single time. Yeah. Right. 
So you, you have to make sure that as, as a GM that you explicitly say that the world is not going to hose you for breaking its rules in order to make fun happen. That is the premise of this thing. Yeah. Or that if it is, it's going to be in a way that you can plan, prepare for, and have fun. Like, if you know that Mr. Johnson is going to betray you, part of the fun is planning the double reverse where you're like, oh, but Mr. Johnson, you did not expect that we have harpy snipers uh, trained on this very boardroom. And they right. will shoot you with their infection gun if you do not give us the money or whatever. Or, or, or if you've got an ongoing game where there are you have several agendas. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, let's say that the overall arc of the uh, series is that you are creating alliance between the peoples of the, the five elements. Mm -hmm. That uh, going into the water is going to build toward that. It's not going to hose you. You're not going to go, oh, well, we'll get screwed with the fire uh, giants if mm -hmm. we go meet the mermaids. That that, the, that that premise is going to support you just the way that the premise of Supernatural supports Sam and Dean going around doing the things that they do every week. Uh, that the premise of the scenario has to reward you for engaging with the premise. Yeah. So, uh, and that if there is a real danger to the underwater environment is such as you can't cast magic spells. It's, it's the sort of thing that is made, uh, they're made aware of it before they go in and they can take some kind of intelligent countermeasure or say, all right, we can't cast any spells. Everyone enchant up all the objects that we can possibly enchant so that we have still some magical throw weight when we're underwater and that they understand that it's going to be the same as the minus two penalty to dex actions or whatever that underwater normally does. As opposed to, oh, now that you're underwater, haha, -ha, guess what? You're hosed. So, yeah. So as a GM, you can't promise fun and then confront them with additional annoying, unfun obstacles. Right. Um, and so uh, Gumsh the way Gumshoe solves uh, this or attempts to solve that is with drives. And so it, you are required to specify a reason why, unlike a sensible person, you're going to go toward danger and mystery, whatever the, the game is. Mm -hmm. So that the trick there is to realize that if the GM is mentioning your drive, that it then behooves you to yes and that. So if the once you see that the GM is struggling to get you uh, to engage with the premise, again, it's a matter of uh, unlocking yourself from that sort of unipolar view of what you think your character uh, would do. Um, and uh, because, it, as you point out, it is fun to negate because you gain all the power in the room and everybody has to petition you to go along and be part of the thing. Uh, but ultimately, that's fun at other people's expense. And so uh, once you're presented with this, even if it doesn't quite make sense to you, then stop and think, okay, how would I really think about this in a way that would get my character to there? Because you're not well, just... Well, you negate your own negation. It's like, yeah. all right, if playing my character is he's not going to do this, what would make my character do this? What in inside myself? I mean, everyone has had the, the time in their lives when they're like, I know this is a terrible idea, but I'm doing it anyway. And it often, it may be because there is an attractive person at the other end of that story, or it may be because you were drunk. But... Everyone has had a thing where, yeah, if I was playing Ken Height sensibly, he would not have done this. But here I am in doing this. And why am I doing this? And what has driven your character into that? And so you can still be just playing your character. Just play your character as the character who is in this situation against their better judgment. Or uh, what has caused them to rise up above the petty jealousies of their nature and, and take a risk for fellow man. That's That makes playing your character more interesting and more true to your character and gives your character more depth. Right. And if need be, you can even sort of coach another player to say, well, uh, you know, 
Bartok wouldn't normally want to go underwater, but if you are, if somebody reminds him the way that this would help him with his family back home of his of his little niece who has always dreamed of having a damp uncle, right? Or if you know you who I've always looked up to talks me into it, why don't I'll I'll, I'll do it if he gives me an inspirational speech? Yeah, if the paladin says, "But we must go underwater to fight evil, Bartok. You hate evil, right?" And so uh, that can be a way to to make that work. But again, I guess essentially it's a matter of stepping out of being a method actor playing your character into realizing that you are also an author uh, responsible for uh, the uh, fun that comes with engagement with the premise. You may be a method actor, but you're not Brando, right? No one has to put up with your nonsense. Yes. uh, (laughs) You are responsible for knowing your lines. And in this case... And showing up. and, And showing up. Exactly. And uh, I guess uh, once we've come down to that crucial part of player advice. Once once we're saying don't be Marlon Brando. Yes. It's time for us (laughs) to show up on the other side of this exciting commercial message. kids want to plunge headlong into lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby gumshoe one-to-one has come to your rescue find this new system by some guy named robin d laws in the first gumshoe one-to-one book cthulhu confidential combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of lovecraft's cthulhu mythos complete with three dauntless investigators each ready to play in seconds scholarly veteran langston wright by chris spivey Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The hum of the projector and the uh, tantalizing aroma of popcorn tell us we've once more settled into the uh, plush, uh, hopefully not too uh, inclining seats, of the cinema hut. This time around, I thought we would talk about the motifs of the war movie and specifically how these uh, change over time and how it often takes a little while for the uh, themes of the war movie to adapt to portray contemporary conflicts. And I think, can uh, are we agreed that the uh, war movie sort of changes its themes and motifs over time in parallel with the uh, different major conflicts that, uh, uh, say, a big movie-going power like uh, America has gotten itself into? I mean, I, I think by and large, uh, you see uh, certainly the notion that a war movie is uh, a story of good and evil sort of begins with the Second World War. There are very few straight-up good and evil war movies before the Second World War. Right. They're, they're fairly uh, nuanced. And then during World War II and, and after, it's like, are you crazy? Hating war is like hating everything, because war is how you kill Nazis. And so war movies became very uh, 
good and evil movies, and then only much later, I mean, in the last 20 years, did they stop being good and evil, which is partly because Vietnam movies didn't usually fit that that paradigm, Green Berets aside, and, and partly because, you know, filmmakers in every other genre had stopped making good and evil movies by and large, except for superhero movies. And, and so the good and evil sort of had fallen out of favor in all the other cinema genres and eventually left the war movie as well. And I think that that may or may not, I, I think that's more because World War II was such an overwhelming event in cinema and cultural history that it sort of changed everything. I don't know that, for example, movies made about uh, World War One before uh, World War Two, and movies made about, uh, say, Iraq now have an awful lot of things in in uh, that are different about them. I mean, in t- except for you know, obviously the weapons and whatnot. Well, uh, let's unpack that a bit. So, uh, the the big first major conflict that changes uh, cinema is World War One, as you suggest, and the basic motifs of a World War One movie are basically that. Uh, war is hell, um, and uh, these conditions are terrible, and uh, and particularly about uh, the onset of modern war. So World War One films are uh, deeply fatalistic about war, and uh, and that's true of uh, the adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front. That's true of Paths of Glory, which is made in the fifties, but is a movie about World War One. And then, as you suggest. Things change when you hit World War II. Um, they change in a, uh, I would argue, somewhat more complicated way, though, because the early films about World War II, uh, including the ones made during World War II or in its immediate aftermath, so uh, Operation Burma with Errol Flynn, which is um, actually released during the war, or They Were Expendable by John Ford immediately after the war, have much more of a sense of uh, pain and sacrifice and loss. Wake Island is the other classic example. Then the ones made, made a little bit afterwards in the glow of the victory. And that's when you start to see that sort of uh, good versus evil pattern fully engage. Well, I mean, it's, it can still be good versus evil. It's just a difference between a tragedy and a we won movie. Right. Right. I mean, no, no one in, no one is being nuanced about the Japanese admission to Burma. No, but the, <laughs> but that's not the main message of what's going right, on, yeah. right? It's, it's a secondary motif mm-hmm. that, uh, it's more about the, the s- sacrifice and difficulty of war. There's no question that it is necessary, but it's about the cost of war. And, and it's somewhat surprising. You would think retrospectively that we'd be looking at things that are very propagandistic. Um, but, or the best years of our lives, sort of a home front movie made immediately afterwards is, uh, very dark, and it's afterwards that the the sort of rosy glow of the fifties starts to descend on things. And and you also see a difference though with uh, whether people have had the directors had an experience of war. So Samuel Fuller's war movies have, even when they're very set and studio bound, have a kind of a subversive authenticity about them because you know he fought in in the infantry and uh, he was in you know, part of the D-Day invasion. And so the the suffering of war is always with him, even in a relatively sort of rah-rah uh, Sam Fuller uh, war movie. And Sam Fuller, of course, uh, because people will put it in the comments if we don't say it here, Sam Fuller famously said, no war movie, it can be anti-war because the, 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 the act of showing the spectacle of war acts as a drug and a, and an adu- inducement, even if the message of the war, the script of the movie is don't go to war kids. It's bad. Right. And, and seldom is it, is his question about whether you should go to war, but it's about what you confront you when you're there. Yeah. 
and it's sort of so it's more uh, sort of a uh, he kind of is breaking breaking the myths without necessarily questioning the the larger mechanism of war. You mentioned the mm-hmm. Green Berets, and I think that's an interesting example of how uh, a previous uh, set of assumptions was then mapped onto the Vietnam War early on, and so it's more of a World War II movie in the mode we've been talking about that happens to be set. Uh, during the Vietnam War. I, I would argue that it's also got a lot in common with the Cavalry Western. Right. Right. If you compare that to, say, Fort Apache or some of the earlier John Wayne movies where he's playing the only sensible man on the front, uh, he's playing that same role in the Green Berets. And it, I mean, it works within the story of that movie. And certainly if you are of the sort of, uh, what I guess they call the revisionist school of Vietnam history, it, it works in some ways better than more famous world uh, Vietnam movies do. But it has, you know, it's certainly it's out of step with what we come to think of as the Vietnam movie. But again, the Vietnam movie po- mostly postdates Vietnam. I mean, those uh, started after the the defeat in Vietnam. There was a big pause before we, uh, the film industry and filmgoers wanted to deal with it. Yeah, and, and so we had to sort of. I think that the defeat in Vietnam and the change in the studio system, whereby you had the sort of new wave directors and the young directors coming up who were wanting to make movies that questioned the old movies anyway. Uh, that sort of hit that uh, sort of perfect storm and you get things like Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now and eventually Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. Right. And Apocalypse Now is uh, has the key in it is that the depiction of uh, the Vietnam conflict is apocalyptic, that it is sort right. of represents a, uh, you know, you're entering the darkness, the madness. And so uh, it is uh, of the various uh, wars that spawn subgenres of war movies is the most explicitly uh, anti-war. Um, and the thing that all of these conflicts uh, so far have in common is that they are conscription wars, that people uh, are, uh, the characters are not necessarily uh, willing enlistees. They're not part of a volunteer army. They are stuck there. They're trapped in a hell, uh, which may be a hell of good versus evil or an apocalyptic hell or the hell of the trenches. But nonetheless, uh, they're in uh, a, a hell of some design. And so that brings us to uh, the contemporary conflicts of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. There's been about as much time has passed since the beginning of those wars and them becoming fodder for cinema, except those wars are both still ongoing in various uh, ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of underlying premise of people being uh, stuck in this situation and trying to make the best of it has kind of been yanked out from under uh, these films. And I, and it's interesting to see filmmakers now begin to kind of grapple uh, with that. I think the one that is closest to a previous uh, mode of war film is The Hurt Locker, which is uh, definitely a war is hell film, but it's a it's about being addicted to that hell. So it, it, it addresses the volunteer army uh while also uh, sort of remaining true to a, a, a previous conception of war. Um, are there other uh, recent war movies that you would point to as being uh, particularly interesting in either hewing to older motifs or establishing new ones? I mean, I think that like The Hurt Locker, The American Sniper is a movie that is about sort of the addiction of war and the feeling that um, and it, this is. Something, uh, I, I don't know if this is exclusive to war movies. I don't know that there's a lot of Westerns, for example, where the guy is like, well, I can really only live by riding the range and shooting owl hoots. 
uh, there's a, there's that sort of the meta story of something like Liberty Valance, but the notion that Chris Kyle is only truly living his best life when he's in what is shown objectively in the film and in the script is the sort of quasi-apocalypse of the Iraq War. It's very similar to The Hurt Locker. Chris Kyle is less of a sort of victim character than uh, Bradley Cooper is in the, not Bradley Cooper, than uh, Jeremy Renner is in The Hurt Locker. But but that's that same sort of psychological dependence on war. And I think we're seeing some of that because, like you say, we're having to grapple with the notion of who volunteers to go there and, and carry all that gear around in a hot desert and be shot at by fascists. No one would volunteer for that. That's terrible. And so... Filmmakers who by and large now are civilians, they're not, you know, Sam Fuller types, are making movies that are saying, I don't know why you would do that. You'd have to be some sort of crazy movie protagonist to do that. And so the characters are presented as that, uh, that, that type of person. Um, and I think that it's interesting that both, uh, I mean, the American Sniper may be the only actually financially successful movie about the recent wars. Most of them have died at the box office. And the, the whole issue of the, the volunteer versus the, the hell of war introduces sort of a uh, a metaphysical question now, um, which you see in Kilo to Bravo, which is a British film about a squadron in Afghanistan who find themselves in the middle of a minefield that they didn't know was there because all of the mines have sort of uh, washed in and now they're in a dry creek bed and they're all trapped mm-hmm. in a uh, in a minefield. And when one mine goes off, guess what happens uh, to everybody who's standing around uh, still? Um, and so it sort of becomes a survival horror movie or you get right. a lone survivor, which has a tip in the title as to what it's in all about title. and which is basically all just the way that a series of uh, random events can take, you know, these ultra prepared, best trained people in the world to be doing this and just all well, the problem with the signal and some equipment and some quotidian uh, logistical food bars back at, at base can just contribute to a disaster that uh, wipes out uh, your entire squad, except for one person. And so there's sort of a a mismatch between the overt desire to celebrate the volunteer soldiers versus the uh, sort of indifference, the the blind idiot fluting of, uh, of death in warfare itself. Yeah, you get some of that. I mean, I think that Lone Survivor probably draws a lot of that from Black Hawk Down, which is another successful war movie uh, one a rare successful war movie about our recent wars this one's somalia but it's i mean i think you can look at black hawk down and you can take pieces out of black hawk down which again was also financially successful as well as being a great movie and you can take pieces out of black hawk down and sort of pin them into a lot of the modern movies i think a lot of modern movies about the current wars wind up uh sort of wanting to be Vietnam movies, but they know they can't do that. So they're doing Vietnam movies shot through the color palette of Black Hawk Down. And Black Hawk Down is, again, about the sort of many tiny things that go wrong, uh, like Lone Survivor is, the sort of chaos of war against these entirely fit, entirely capable, entirely heroic characters. And that's something that's interesting with The Volunteer Soldier is that, by and large, in even in the movies that are anti-war, it's about, oh, this war is so terrible, it makes Matt Damon sad, as opposed to Matt Damon is a horrible war criminal, and why are we watching him, right? Which might be the actual politics of the filmmaker, but they know better than to say, we have to present this character who's unlovable, we have to present a character who's a hero, but is 
in this unheroic situation, they're in a moral apocalypse, even if it's not a physical apocalypse like uh, Apocalypse Now Apocalypse. Right. The, the model right? for some of these may be something more like Seven Samurai, which is about the bonded group of professional soldiers uh, being slowly picked off by the situation that they've chosen to be in. And when you think of Seven Samurai, at least here in the West, you don't think of that as a seminal war movie uh, because, of course, it's about a small skirmish. It's more, you know, when it was adapted, it wasn't turned into a war movie. It was turned into a Western. The really interesting, very recent example of uh, dealing with the uh, Iraq conflict is a new film called Sand Castle, directed by Fernando Coimbra. It's just appeared on Netflix, stars Nicholas Holt. And of the Iraq films uh, that I've seen, which is a, there's a very small number of Iraq films. This is the one that seemed most to me like the way that people who have talked to me about their involvement in that uh, conflict describe it. So it's about, uh, you know, having to drive supplies up and down roads where people are uh, going to try and pick you off along those roads and about uh, trying to get a water project uh, off the ground and dealing with uh, distrustful locals who it turns out have every reason to be distrustful of you because your promises to protect them are vain and, and foolish. And so it is not a condemnation of the conflict, but it definitely follows its uh, main character from the sort of uh, innocence to experience arc in a really interesting way and seems like people involved in that had some personal knowledge of the, the nature of the conflict and what separated it, what made it unique. Uh, compared to other uh, conflicts, including well, the, the, the scriptwriter, I think was a was a machine gunner in the war. It shows, yeah. So, and again, American Sniper was based on obviously the memoir of you know Chris Kyle. So it was, um, I don't know to what extent anyone involved in that film was a specific veteran, uh, because obviously, right. And there have been questions but, about about that as source material, right? Yeah. So, w- what do we expect to see going forward? Since we're just sort of on the the early edge of, uh, of films about these conflicts. Are we going to see eventually a template of what uh, an Afghanistan film is or what an Iraq conflict film is that we will see more of in the future? Are there going to be more sandcastles and more Kilo 2 Bravos? Or are we just too indifferent to those conflicts to have them be anything more than sort of a a side thing that occasionally a, a film dribbles out about. I, I think that we've got a couple of sort of, we have, we have sort of conflicting drives here because scriptwriters and directors love war movies for the obvious reason that it's a huge, powerful genre. It lets you tell all kinds of great stories. Stakes are high. Stakes are high. You don't ever have to explain, well, you know, what, what does this guy want? He wants not to be shot. Um, it's, it's super, it's super strong filmmaking and to feel relevant making a war movie has to address the current wars, right? You can't make a, a war movie about, you know, the Spanish American war now without people laughing at you. And I think a movie about world war two, unless you are doing sort of a deliberate sort of like world war two movies now are like Bible epics, right? They have to be sort of big and, and, and Cecil B. DeMille, like, and like the Dunkirk movie that's coming out. And, uh, uh most movies like, uh, world war two movies are now sort of big stories yeah, they're big or they're stories about, sort of um uh individual operators like uh like uh, spies and operation anthropoid uh, the movie about the killing of hydric they're not you know sort of the men on a mission saving private ryan type movie that was sort of the last of those and even that was sort of big and epic and, and definitely applied the template of the vietnam war onto the uh conflict of world war 2 right and so you can't make a war movie about the past and have it feel relevant to audiences and so you want to make the movie given the current 
uh, present. Um, uh, Doug Lyman's got a new sniper movie, uh, called The Wall that's coming out, which looks like it's going to be like every great sniper movie. It's a duel of wits between, uh, a, a good guy and a bad guy. And the bad guy, even he has an, a, an accent. It's like, it's literally like every, you know, duel against the German sniper movie I've ever seen, except it's going to be in Iraq, I guess, or Afghanistan. And, and so the ongoing, uh, drive to make more war movies is strong in the artistic community, but, and like I said, war movies about Iraq and Afghanistan have not traditionally done well at the box office. Um, again, you've got Black Hawk Down, you've got American Sniper. Uh, Lone Survivor did um, well. Lone Survivor did it do well? Yeah. Um, because I, I, I remember Lions for Lambs just like exploded on impact at the box office and no one ever heard of it again. And I guess uh, 13 Hours did all right, uh, which is another war movie that we're talking about, although that's kind of the kissing cousin between the war movie and the spy movie. But again, it's very much like we're going to make uh, Zero Dark Thirty, and then we're going to stop in the middle and make Black Hawk Down, and uh, it's Michael Bay. So you know, I'm, I, two movies at once—it's like a bonus. <laughs> yeah, he, he restricted himself <laughs> to just two instead of seven. And it's um, uh, and it's certainly it's it's a riveting you know watching experience because again, Michael Bay. But but they don't generally do well, and so studios are not going to greenlight as many war movies about Iraq and Afghanistan because they would rather not lose a ton of money. And certainly, you're you're not going to see them unless it becomes a passion project for someone like Clint Eastwood, who's got the ability to greenlight a movie all by themselves. Uh, well, I guess on this note, it's uh, it's time for us to uh, uh, creep on out of here. I guess we'll get our discharge papers, hopefully honorable, and head on out to the next segment. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... David Mascari. Derek Heimforth. Todd W. Olson. Bill Sundwall. And Fred Kish. All right, welcome to another segment of Ken and or Robin Talk to Somebody Else. And in this case, somebody else is Keisha Howard, uh, Chicago's head, or at least face, I'm going to say head, of the Sugar Gamers. And Keisha 
Rather than me tell you what the sugar gamers are, why don't you tell the vast listening audience of Ken and Robin talk about stuff? Awesome sauce. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. No, thanks for coming in. And, um, well, Sugar Gamers is a tech advocacy organization of sorts, but we we emphasize video games, geek culture, gadgets, things that we're consuming. So we want to make sure that we highlight underserved or underrepresented demographics in that space and have a community events that allow people to see what opportunities exist and meet other people that have similar interests. So do you see yourself as an artist collective, as a burgeoning tech startup, as a cultural movement? If you're going to sort of define sugar gamers. Uh, Well, I mean, one of the awesome things about living in 2017 is that we no longer have to be defined by rigid standards. Right. So uh, we're a little bit of all of that. Um, We're a media company and you can come to our site and you can find out news that you might not find elsewhere. Sugargamers.com. Yep. Sugargamers.com. You can also come to our events. And gamers who are developing games, whether they're tabletop or video game or anything like that, that are in the community, they have a chance to showcase their work to a a wider demographic, a warm community ready to accept and embrace them. We also go to cons and we meet the people who are in charge of some of the the largest uh, game companies like uh, Team Ninja, for example, or 2K Games. And we can then network with those people to have access to their products. So it works in a a lot of different ways. And being part of Sugar Gamers is not only productive, but beneficial to one's career. Or if someone is trying to figure out what their niche is in the geek space, Sugar Gamers is a great community for that. And you can sort of see what everyone else is doing and say, oh, I kind of like some of that and some of that, and I'd like to do more of that. Right. It's all it's all about having access and also support because being in this industry, highly competitive, very difficult. And the, the main thing that people really need to keep going forward and to remain confident is knowing that people have their back. There's other people in the same boat as them. And uh, just have a warm community to back them up. Fantastic. Now, you guys started out electronically, but you at least have drifted into the backwater of tabletop gaming. (laughs) And so tell us about that sort of progression. Was that from from the jump you were like, well, there are some nerds who are still rolling dice and moving miniatures. I want to be part of that. Or was this what what brought you into uh, the ambit of tabletop? Well, I always played tabletop games. I may have taken a break, uh, you know, in my early 20s, but growing up, I had brothers and my older brothers. Uh, we would play Dungeons and Dragons and Magic pretty much every week for a long time until they, they went to college. And they're both six years older than me. So I have a lot of nostalgia when it comes to tabletop games because for me, that was a way to bond with, you know, some of the most important men in my life, which are my brothers. I have some of the m- most fondest memories from just being in the same room, eating, laughing, and imaginating, if you will, uh, 
you know, just being in this alternate universe and my brother, he's like the dungeon master. And I mean, it was good times. The, the, the main thing I'm trying to say is like from my childhood, I had great positive experiences and great bonding experiences playing tabletop games. So, you know, in our adulthood, you know, we get overwhelmed with so many things, you know, that take us away from just being in the same room and focusing on having fun with people that we care about. You know, we have our phones, we have social media, we have our jobs, we have bills, we have so many things to do. We drink, we go out, we do this. I mean, tabletop gaming, in my opinion, is is just a great way to maintain relationships. Uh, It's just a great social thing to do outside of what we're normally supposed to do like go out and drink or you know like what if you're an introvert what if you just want to be in the house what if you just want to hang out with two or three people at a time I think it's you know tabletop gaming for that reason is a great starting point so let's talk a little bit about that sort of uh, bridge point between tabletop and the rest of uh, the sugar gamers sort of cultural focus on electronic games and gadgets and the other stuff that you were talking about toys do you do you see that as a sort of a naturally permeable membrane that someone who's into computer games is going to be into tabletop and it's just a matter of knowing the right people and some and saying yeah let's let's play or do you think it's a little more uh, selective than that or a little more desperate than that I guess depending on how you want to focus it I mean I don't know I think it just takes that one really excited enthusiastic person to make that transition for me for example like I have a bunch of friends and we all came together to play Axon Punk. Now, the friends that I bought together were four people who hadn't played tabletop games at all. But because I was enthusiastic and I'm just like, let's do this thing and it's going to be fun. You just need that one person to kind of, you know, light the fuse to make things happen. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. And I think that when you're immersed in making a game, you kind of want to say, like, I made this thing and it has layers and stories and here are the rules. Roll the dice. And it's just like, calm down. Like, the, the, the foundation is that it's supposed to be fun that you have with your friends. And if you get to that part, then absolutely there's a transition from any other kind of gaming that we play. Except for, more than likely, we can do this in the same room. Whereas video games are heavily... Uh, shifting to just being online only. I find it very difficult to find a game where I can play with another player on my couch in my, you know, in my space. I have to find someone online, which isn't bad, but I miss having, you know, actual physical bodies to play a game. Personal interaction. Exactly. And I guess that's sort of the thing that I've begun to believe more is that setting up a tabletop game night whether it's role-playing games or board games, it's just like any other kind of party, right? You're like, we're all going to get together and eat Korean food or we're all going to get together and watch Bollywood movies. Let's all get together and play Axon Punk or Dungeons & Dragons, right? Or, it's the same thing. We're all going to get together and watch Sunday football exactly. or any other sport that we all get together in, you know? Like, it's the same as everything else, except for, in my opinion, the one thing about tabletop games that stands out from all the other sort of pastimes and gaming that we do is that it really stimulates our imagination. And that's something that we don't often have to use anymore because everything is like uh, prepackaged for us to consume. 
But here in this space in tabletop gaming, we can really immerse ourselves and our character and our story that we created with our friends. And it's really special and amazing. So speaking of the story that you've created with yourself and your friends, you are involved in not just playing Axon Punk, but involved in the Kickstarter that's going on now. Everyone go on Kickstarter, search Axon Punk. It's designed by my friend Colin Kyle, fellow Chicagoan game designer. How did you get involved in it, and what are you doing as part of the Axon Punk project? What's your What's your role? Okay. Um, well, I'll I'll tell you how we got involved. Uh, way like two years ago, I'd say um, I met Colin online, or I met Colin, but not very not directly. And I looked at his social media and I looked at Axon Punk and I was just like, wow, this is a lot like a Sugar Gamers project called Project Violatia, which takes place in a cyberpunk dystopia. I realize I've buried the lead here a little bit. Axon Punk is a hip hop cyberpunk game in which the sort of street action and uh, noir sensibility of cyberpunk is melded with the community action and hip hop sensibility of hip hop. Uh, the game uh, is meant to flow. It is meant to evoke a musical sensibility and an urban sensibility that perhaps Seattle do not evoke and other places do. And this is why Colin invited me in yes. to, to help. Because Colin and his brother, you know, though heavily influenced by hip hop, having a team that actually includes uh, women and people of color and people who have their own sort of relationship with cyberpunk, uh, tabletop gaming, hip hop, music, all of that. And then actually putting that together creates a whole different type of vibe, a whole different type of authenticity. And when you're going to, you know, sort of create a game where you want diversity, I think that it's very important to have a diverse team. And Colin thought so as well. And because we had similar projects, we came together on uh, Axon Punk. And soon we'll be coming together on Project Violation as well. And I'm really excited about that. So what are you doing as part of the project? Is it marketing? Is it uh, setting advice? Is it uh, design work? What's your, what's your sort of role as part of the Axon Punk team? Uh, I mean, I would definitely say uh, consulting on a number of things. But again, with Project Violatia, we had so many uh, great photos and videos and storylines. And again, because our projects were so similar and our visions were similar in having, you know, products that were diverse, that had different voices, that had, you know, that kept in mind, you know, the, the needs of demographics that aren't usually represented, um, it just kind of was a very organic uh, union. So we had pictures from Project Violatia. Uh, we had so many pictures that some of them were able to be used for Axon Punk. Uh, different art style, but you might recognize some of the faces. Another thing is that when you when anybody is really immersed in their creation. Of something like if you're a writer you're gonna write if you're you know uh, a game developer you're gonna be coding and programming and so on and so forth so sometimes you need to like kind of get your head up to see what's going on in the world what are the conversations being had to make sure that you're still relevant 
Uh, so that was pretty much my job because what I wanted to do is be a part of a project, especially with tabletop gaming, that wasn't just in the tabletop gaming community, but that was accessible and compelling to people who had never played tabletops. So, Keisha, you started out playing D&D. Now you're playing Axon Punk. Uh, is there a is there a felt difference? I mean, obviously, your brother's running the one, and maybe someone else who is not your brother is running the other one. Or are you running Axon Punk for your friends? How's that working out for you at the table? Uh, I mean... I'm kind of falling back into it. For me, I play tabletop games always with a huge amount of humor. So to to laugh and joke around is really important to me. And so one of the the main difference between differences between how I play games now uh, and then is uh, Colin. He's he's very detail oriented. He's worked very hard on this game. So. At times, I have to kind of loosen up the, the, you know, the moment so he can get back to, like, why playing games is so fun to begin with. Uh, So, like, I would say that that's the only difference is that, like, for me, I'm always going to make sure that everybody involved is going to have fun. Whereas a person who develops a game wants to make sure that the game plays well and the mechanics are, are seamless and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that would be the only thing, but I'm kind of just sliding right back into the, the, the person I was as a kid where I'm just giggling because someone says something silly about what item they bought or purchased or what they're going to do with their character. And uh, it's just, it brings me a lot of glee, you know, to, to just hear people make up things off, you know, the top of their head within a, a world that, you know, has been created for us to, to sort of play in. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's kind of always the same. You know, you play games, at least these kind of games, to have fun. And uh, it's so much fun. And I, I really want to share that feeling with my friends and the community that follows Sugar Gamers. So I didn't want it to be something that people felt intimidated by because you know usually when you hear about people playing tabletop games it's like this is gonna take six hours and you're gonna have to like take so long to do this and do that but if you have a really compelling story really compelling music really compelling art you know so on and so forth really compelling game mechanics uh, and you put that all together it, it turns into something that can be more than what we typically see in the the tabletop gaming community So on that note, that it is more than what you typically see, I urge everyone to check out Axon Punk. If you are listening to it while it is still kickstarting, perhaps think of backing it. That'd be a nice thing to do for Colin and Keisha. And obviously, check out SugarGamers.com. If you are fortunate enough to be in the greatest city in the world, Chicago, come by a Sugar Gamers event. And thank you, Keisha, for stopping by and telling us about Sugar Gamers and about Axon Punk. Woot woot! Thank you for having me. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world.
In John Scott Tyne's Puppet Land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the Maker Killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. The whirring of time gears and the clacking chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated puts Ken in, uh, with or without a uh, vodka tonic, and sends him back into the time stream to Ben Fuller. Well, there's a cup holder. Oh, there's a cup holder. Yeah. So sure, it's a time machine. Right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. Right. And presumably the uh, the cup holder can get you a a vodka tonic from any timeline since the invention of spirits. Right. right. So, since the invention of tonic. Actually. Are we tonic digressing, perhaps, Ken? Pardon? Are we digressing? Are we? I believe we are. I mean, We're digressing. At some level, discussing vodka tonics is sort of the core mission of Ken's Time Machine, possibly of the whole podcast. Well, I'm sure Patreon backer Alan Wilkins agrees with you completely, but he also wants to know uh, a bit of rocky business here, uh, so to speak, because uh, Alan would like you to fess up to some uh, recent, uh, what some people might initially think of as malfeasance. I'm sure by the end of the segment, we'll all sympathize entirely with why you did this. But uh, And this is a, an interesting assignment because you went back in time a mere 13 years to the 13th of May, 2003. And uh, according to Alan, and he would know, you destroyed New Hampshire's old man of the mountain rock formation. Now, I'm sure you only needed to give it the, the tiniest of nudges because it had been eroding uh, for many, many years. That was a disaster waiting to happen. So this adventure occurs in uh, not only, of course, in, in New Hampshire. If you're going to wreck something made of stone, better do it in the granite state. There's uh, something poetic about that. And this occurs in uh, New Hampshire's second most famous notch, Franconia Notch, specifically the Franconia Notch State Park, uh, which houses uh, the White Mountains, which is what I would choose to name a mountain range in New Hampshire, and the Cannon Mountain. And uh, there used to be a jut-jawed profile in stone. Uh, so, Ken, as you researched uh, this uh, formation that Time Incorporated ordered you to Deep Six, what did you discover about it? Well, the first thing that we discover about the Old Man of the Mountain is that it is, uh, as you say, it's on the side of uh, Cannon Mountain. It uh, points out into the valley over what was, I, I guess, is now called Profile Lake and at some point will be called <laughs> Used to Be a Profile yeah. Lake. And it is perhaps most famous for being the subject of a uh, great Nathaniel Hawthorne story to the extent that that is not a um, uh, redundancy. Uh, the Great Stone Face, which uh, said that at some point there would arise a savior of America who would be recognizable from the Great Stone Face that had been put up on the mountain. And uh, it's about a bunch of people who see the mountain or hear the story and decide, I'm the great savior. And they go to the mountain and the sort of um, uh, keeper of the mountain's lore says, no, you're not the savior. You're a terrible human being. And then they go away chasing. Um, and it's, a, it's, you know, it's Hawthorne. Read it yourself. But it's... Uh, I think that's its most uh, famous claim to fame. 
It has the great line, uh, Daniel Webster, the great son of the Granite State, who said, men hang out their sides, indicative of their respective trades. Shoemakers hang out a shoe, jewelers a monster watch, the dentist a gold tooth. But up in the mountains of New Hampshire, God Almighty has hung out a sign to show that here he makes men. And I suppose one could make a invidious argument that obviously God is no longer in the man-making business in New Hampshire. But uh, since I did it, I guess I probably shouldn't put this on God. <laughs> uh, that's right. <laughs> yes. In the 1920s, nothing to do with me, uh, erosion opens up a crack in the top of the great old man's forehead. And so they have to start uh, securing it with chains and uh, and whatnot. And that is the uh, uh, reason or the... Or the surface reason, at least, that the thing fell apart. Right. Uh, again, it was getting on in years. Yes, it was an old man. As old men do. But explain your uh, rock formation euthanasia. Well, why, why did you do this? Well, for that, I must return to New Hampshire. An entomologist named Annie Trumbull Slosson. And she uh, lived in Franconia, in, the, in that area. Um, she collected insects in that area. She was a, a, a summerer, I guess, I guess one of the summer people that Shirley Jackson warns us about in the prophetic story of the summer people. And so she gathered up insects in the mountains of New Hampshire and Vermont and saved them and, and, and published them as insects. And uh, it is perhaps no coincidence that she dies in 1926 just as the old man of the mountain is beginning to show cracks. And my discovery was that while she was collecting insects in uh, the upper hills of uh, Vermont and New Hampshire, she encountered a specimen. And that specimen was one that she recognized as threatening and put into the rocky declivities of uh, the old man of the mountain because the rocky declivities had just opened up and she jammed it down in there and poured in some sealant and thought, well, I've taken care of that dangerous insect specimen. Now, all I know is that if the dangerous insect specimen is allowed to sort of lie there, insist, pupate and create lots more insects, there is at the very least a plague in New England that makes Zika virus look like a summer cold. Now, that is at the very least, because I am not at liberty to say that some of those insects may or may not have been from the trans-Neptunian planet known to us as Yuggath and to all other people as the planet Pluto. I can't say that, because like a, because I'm not dumb enough to gene-type the stupid insect. Right. But in order to get rid of the stupid insect, you do have to pour uh, something uh, with a um, uh, very active molecular life into that notch where um, uh, Annie Trumbull Slauson's uh, sealant has been decaying for the last 60 years. And I did happen to have quinine, which is a useful specific against insects, and alcohol, which is a useful dissolver of sealants and a messer of with insects. On me. Right. Which is how you justified the cup holder. It's how I justified the cup holder on the budget request. And so it, it took, it took a great many vodka tonics, but eventually that nest of dangerous, possibly trans Neptunian insects was in fact flushed out. So you drank the old man of the mountain under the table. Under the table or technically under the cliff. But yes, it's the same basic principle. So they've, they've all been sort of conclusively destroyed. Why, why did you go back to 2003 
specifically? Why did it have to be then when you could have chosen uh, you could have chosen to go back uh, to, to meet our entomologists and just take them off her hands? Why? Why 2003? Meeting Annie Trumbull Slauson creates other problems because so many of her family are literary figures and cultural figures that if she who is remember a gifted uh, observer a, a great scientific mind if she had caught a whiff of a uh, charming drunk with a time machine it might have gotten out and we can't have that she, she might have questioned the captain america t-shirt right she might have said i am fascinated by your tales of the future and handsome stranger with uh in enchanting cocktails but i have to wonder what exactly is this Husker do that you proclaim upon you uh, or whatever? It, it, you can't re- we can't risk contaminating the cultural time stream, Robin. I'm, I'm surprised you even asked that. And why 2003? Because that's when I found out. And uh, in New Hampshire, the liquor stores are open because they're run by the government. That's when you found out. Yeah, right. So I just went over there and did it. So you didn't this mean you didn't use your time machine? You were just in 2003? Well, I was in 2003. With the time machine oh, I see. on a different mission. Oh, you're on a different mission. Then you yes. got wind of it. And so I got wind of it. And you just was, went ahead uh, and did it without time incorporated necessarily signing off ahead of time. Well, when you say I want to destroy a beloved national landmark, time incorporated makes you fill out a bunch of forms. So better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Exactly. Especially if you can go back in time and file the permission ahead of time. Right. So what were you doing in 2003? Uh, in 2003, at that point um, in uh, New Hampshire, I was uh, collecting stamps. Right. Um, and, and what time incorporated mission had you collecting stamps? Oh, right. No, that was just for me. Um, I, I, I was uh, taking a break. It's uh, important to get oh, away. So you took it for a joy ride. It's not a joy ride. It's a, it's a, it's like um, one of those uh, Doctor Who things where he says yeah, we're just right. going on a holiday to collect some stamps and then right. the TARDIS just happens to take him to where the conflict is. To where there's a problem. One yes. of those. Be- Right, yeah, uh, that's that's um, uh, that's more common than Time Incorporated likes to pretend, or IP reasons, if nothing else. If not, exactly, and also because it turns out that if all of my vacation trips can be retroactively classified as urgent time missions, guess who gets double pay for vacations? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I think that's explained a, a whole lot about a whole lot. So, uh, <laughs> the old man of the mountain, uh, we missed the old man of the mountain, but we would not have missed. A plague of uh, Yogothian insects. Not that we're saying that's what it was. No, no, that would be ridiculous. That would expand the um, uh, the mythology of Time Incorporated segment, possibly beyond uh, comprehension. Exactly. And we right. can't have And when that. we're uh, battling the very borders of comprehension itself, clearly that's a sign that we've completed our mission for this week. And we'll be back next week with a uh, very similar yet entirely different podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Grain Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Admire the very best rock formations alongside such patrons as... John Kingdon. Lewis R. Evans. Noel Warford. Samwise Kreider. And Aaron Sapp. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>